You are listening to Workers' Power on 4ZZZ. Uh, this this week, I am all by myself in the station because of the lockdown. Both of my co-hosts are home with their children. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a new experience for me. I hope you'll you'll forgive me for <laughs> any mistakes I make. Um, today on the show, we don't have any interviews, so I don't think I'd be able to handle that myself. But we do have plenty of workers' action, like quite a lot actually um i don't think we're going to get through all of it though considering how little i talk we might just um and of course we have our world famous scallywag of the week but before we get started we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast who are the yagara and terrible people this land was stolen never ceded and we pay our respects to elders past and present we acknowledge we also acknowledge all First Nations comrades listening today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people in their struggle for recognition, reparations, and land rights. We live it and benefit on stolen land. It's time to pay the rent. Alrighty. And on that note, let's get into some First Nations workers' action. Uh, we're going to start off with our weekly update from Kabi Dreaming. Uh, and it looks like this will give us a rundown on what's going on, so I won't give you, I won't go over it again. Uh, so, guided by the spirits of their ancestors, the original sovereign tribes of the Kabi First Nation state have reasserted sovereignty over their sacred tribal lands, waterways, and sacred sites in 2015. This is not just for the benefit of the Kabi tribes, but it is also the benef- for the benefit of all who live on Kabi country, for the sake of all children, the land, its creatures, the environment and our future survival. It's time for all decent people who love the land on which they live and to, and to join together peacefully to obey law, as that's um, in, indigenous law, not the, not the law of the government, um, and, to respect, and to restore respect, truth, humanity and spirit to this land for our future and for all our children. We are fighting to protect the Kabi sacred site of Jakikundu, also known as the Gimpi Pyramid, from destruction by the Queensland Transport and Main Roads Department. We also want to demolish this. Who who want to demolish this site for a four-lane highway? Uh, and this is the update from uh, very recently. I think like yesterday or the day before. So, cultural exchange continues on Kabi sacred tribal land. It was lovely to see Uncle Eugene again. Clean up and waterproofing continues in preparation for winter. We need 100mm by 100mm proofing timbers and help with transporting roofing iron. Any assistance would be greatly appreciated. Much love to all. So, for more info, and on, especially on how you can help out, uh, you can go to Kabi, search up Kabi Dreaming. They've got a Facebook page. Um... So, for our comrades in the northern areas of southeast Queensland, please reach out to reach out in solidarity to our comrades protecting the country. Uh, yeah, uh, there. This is an ongoing struggle, and it's our favourite kind. <laughs> so we're gonna keep on giving you updates. Uh, we've got one later on from Bill um, from the Deeping Creek uh, struggle right here in Brisbane, or it's close to Ipswich, actually. Um, Yeah, Uh, so that's always good. Uh, But now we've got a news story. Actually, I think we've got, yeah, we've got two more news stories. So this one I took from Green Left Weekly. I forgot to get the author, I'm afraid, but 
Um, uh, so this is about about what is going on in the Northern Territory, uh, where I'll just read it out. Um, so Nor- Northern Territory government's tougher than ever approach sets up a Don Dale rerun. First Nations and other national organizations have strongly criticized the Northern Territory Labour government's proposal to get tough on young people who re-offend, saying it would drive more Aboriginal children into police and prison cells. Labour Chief Minister Michael Gunner announced on March 23rd he would bring in tougher-than-ever consequences for young people who re-offend or breach bail conditions. Cheryl Axelby, co-chair of Change the Record, a national First Nations organisation, said the measures would bring the Northern Territory back to the dark old days before the Royal Commission, when Don Dale was full of Aboriginal children being subjected to the most horrendous abuse. The 2017 Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory, sparked by an ABC Four Corners program which showed young people being mistreated in the Dundale Youth Detention Centre, found shocking and systematic failures in the youth prison system. The Northern Territory already jails young people at a rate three times higher than the rest of the country. Historically, 95% have been Indigenous. Axelby said the government should be looking at community-driven solutions that all the evidence says we need and accused it of ignoring recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Gunner's proposals have also been criticised by the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, Jesuit Social Services, Australian Lawyers Alliance and the Northern Territory Children's Commissioner Sally Sievers. However, the Northern Territory Chamber Chamber of Commerce and the Northern Territory Police Association have welcomed the changes, uh, proposals, not changes, not happened yet. Hopefully it won't. Um, The evidence is very clear, Axelby said. The younger a child comes into contact with the criminal justice system, the more likely they are to become trapped in the criminal justice cycle and go on to offend in the future. The Northern Territory government might think these law changes will be popular in the short term, but they are doomed to fail. We know because these previous Northern Territory governments have tried them before and they did nothing to keep kids or the community safe. Building new remand centres to look up Aboriginal children who have not even been found guilty of doing anything wrong is the last thing we need. There are 43 times the number of Aboriginal children locked up behind bars in Northern Territory than non-Indigenous children. Now the Northern Territory government is building new prisons to fill with more of our children. The Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children was very clear that there are only a small number of circumstances in which a child should be denied bail, and they should only ever be put into in detention as a last resort. Axelby said that the proposed proposal to allow police to slap a tracking device on a child before they've even gone to court or been found guilty of a crime is wrong and does nothing to address the drivers of crime. These reforms are punitive, they're dangerous, and they're doomed to fail, and it's our kids who will be hurt the most. That is a absolutely crazy story. Um, like, the idea of putting children into prison... Well, I guess it's jail, but that's just a semantic difference at all is like abhorrent and somehow they're doing it in order to get votes. Um, you have to forgive me. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't talk to too, too many. I don't get out that much, but 
I don't think I've ever met anyone who would be happy about children being sent to jail. Uh, um, yeah, and this is obviously... I suppose racism plays a big part of that. Like, the this is going ahead in the Northern Territory and um, w- um, where, like, 95% of uh, in, uh, children in prison have been Indigenous. Um, and I don't know, I guess... Uh, I can't think of anything to say and I don't want to leave dead air so we're going to (laughs) move on to the next story Um, but yeah it's good that people are doing something against that and hopefully it doesn't go through because it's pretty horrifying Um, you think we're you know progressing as a society and then we just get the same stuff over and over again it's a big old circle cycle um yeah, so our next story is from NATV, which is called Sacred Songlines Threatened, with Western Australia First Nation groups concerned over Andrew Forrest appeal from NITV. Now, I believe Andrew Forrest was actually our scallywag of the year last year, in 2020. Um, <laughs> I might be, I'm not sure if that's right. I'm pretty sure it's right. Uh, because he was uh, in charge of the... Uh, cashless debit card program sort of and our lovely comrades over at the no cashless debit card group um, bombarded the poll and got him the win (laughs) Uh, yeah so and now of course is threatening First Nations people yet again with uh, destruction of their culture so First Nations groups say an appeal by mining billionaire Andrew Forrest against the Western Australian government's decision to block development plans around the Ashburton River could irrevocably irrevocably damage the spiritual connections to their homelands. An appeal against the WA government's decision to knock back an application for the construction of 10 weirs on the Ashburton River is being strongly opposed by Thalet... Thalaniji traditional owners. Tatarung, the company of billionaire and philanthropist <laughs> philanthropist Andrew Forrest is appealing the 2019 decision by Aboriginal Affairs Minister Ben Wyatt to block his proposal. The river runs through the through Forest Cattle Station Mindaroo. Uh, The WA government refused to grant permission under Section 18 of the state's Heritage Protection Act, only the third time the government has refused to grant permission under the Act. Traditional owner Trudy Hayes said the plans could irrevocably damage their spiritual connection to the land. The river is where we do our learning, the Thelonaiji woman said in a statement to NITV News. The river is everything. It's part of us and it's connected with everyone. Ms. Haynes said the river is part of a is a place of cultural and spiritual learning, and is of great significance to Thelonaiji people. It, just like somebody, just like someone going to the altar in a church or making the sign of a cross, we were taught to look after country, and country would look after us. Ms. Hayes said, Western Australia's heritage laws are under scrutiny after the legal destruction of the forty-six thousand-year-old Yukon George Cave with the traditional owners, the Putikunti Kurama, and the Pinikura peoples also raising their concerns over the proposal. 
The PKKP said the proposed works could have a devastating impact on the spiritual and cultural lives of traditional owners who call the area home. Any impact on a river downstream will have a devastating effect uh, all along the river and forever change the entire ecosystem for traditional owners upstream. The PKKP peoples said they hold grave concerns about the impacts on songlines and dreamings which could be affected by the plans and that any disturbance of the river flow would be harmful. The creation of the river by the Walu snake means that it must be free to flow and the fish and eels can travel along it, the statement read. The spiritual impact of damming the waterway must not be ignored. In a statement, Tatarang said they were in discussion with the state government and traditional owners. Our strong desire is to work in a cooperative manner with the Thulaniji people, the traditional custodians of land, to preserve heritage at Mindaroo Station and the natural landscape while developing sustainable agriculture into challenging environments currently experiencing prolonged drought conditions. Yeah, um, so <laughs> that is, yeah, it's just another... Example of Andrew Forrest going over First Nations people, mining companies. Is this a mining company? Um, oh, it's a cattle station. Yeah, it's, well, corporations in general destroying First Nations culture, uh, capitalism in general, having no, absolutely no regard for the spiritual nature that the land is held in. Um, and of course we have First Nations people constantly having to fight to protect what they have left um, uh, and this is a, this is also um, like about environmental protection too it's like they're damming a river um, or constructing ten weirs. I'm not sure what a weir is, but it basically it's disturbing the flow of the river, which will of course uh, disturb the um, the ecosystem further down the river where the, from where it's been blocked um, and can potentially have big impacts on the area as a whole. You know, as like people use it for food, for drinking, for everything else, um, and yeah, um, it's pretty, pretty horrible. But hopefully, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. Hopefully, a lot. Um, it's there's a, with, with <laughs> this one. It's it's a lot of bad things happening and. Um, the fighting back looks small in comparison, but you know these these First Nations people have been fighting for years, and while I can't really see it here, I'm sure they know what they're doing, and they will um, hopefully have some success. There we go, saying it again. And now we are going to move on to. Agitate, Educate, Organize, which is our segment where we uh, let you know what we have been doing. Though uh, it hasn't been very full recently, but we do have a report from Bill, which I'll read out for you. So, um, it was a great honor of mine to attend a Truth Through Healing Day at Deeping Creek last week as part of the Ipswich Lockyer Greens. I spent the day with the protectors of Deeping Creek and had an emotional day. 
I've been hanging around Deeping Creek in solidarity for over two years now and I have barely touched on the truth. There is continuing evidence of an atrocious history of how First Nations workers were treated here. The struggle for this important part of our history to be revealed and a growing connection to the land is a workers' issue. The day was such a success that there are more to be organised by the Deeping Creek protectors. Stay tuned to Workers' Power here on 4ZZZ for dates that comrades will be able to attend. Thank you for that, Bill. Looks, um, yeah, it's going to be something happening in, over at Deeming Creek, and that's good. <laughs> for those that don't know, Deeming Creek is an area near Ipswich, um, which used to be a mission. So, like... I don't know, it's like a concentration camp for indigenous people, I think. Um, although that might be a bit of a harsh way of putting it. Uh, it was pretty bad for them there, I think. Um, anyway, this specific area was a graveyard. Um, so there's a whole bunch of indigenous people buried there. Um, and the... I, can't remember the name of the company, but there's a company that wants to develop a shopping mall or something on it, or nearby it, which um, will threaten the threaten the bodies in the graves. Um, and now, uh, in addition to this, they also want to build a train station or a train line. Um, yeah, and obviously, <laughs> yeah. What you don't? Why would you build near a graveyard? Um, <laughs> it's just, um, well, like, yeah, especially, I mean, the big problem is that the graveyard isn't, like, clearly lined out, like most graveyards. There was sort of, like, they're all unmarked graves. Um, so the, the any building near it is incredibly risky, and you could, yeah, threaten the, uh, threaten damaging the bodies. Um, anyway, uh, we're going to... We're going to move on to some workers' action now. We have a strike update from McCormick. Last week, McCormick began the process of putting a new offer to McCormick members who will have who have been on strike who will have been on strike for four weeks from tomorrow. This new offer has already been overwhelmingly rejected by union members. The offer the company has put to workers will slash many of their conditions and leave workers at more and leave workers more than $500 worse off a week. Wow. It is totally unacceptable and completely out of touch with workers' reasonable demands. The new agreement will be put to a vote tomorrow. In the meantime, workers continue to stand together united. Workers will be taking a range of actions over the next week to keep the pressure up, and the community's support is essential to workers winning this fight. McCormick wants to bring American-style anti-worker, anti-community management to Australia. The strike is about sending a message to all employers across Australia about the way and all the way to the US that we will not be trampled on or disrespected. To support workers, please consider donating if you are able and passing on the fund to co-workers, comrades and family. I unfortunately don't have a link here, but uh tell you what, during the next song break I'll look on the look on the Facebook page. Um and post it to 
I'll, I'll look look it up and post it to our Facebook page. Um, but yeah, five hundred dollars worth of a week—that is huge. Like, <laughs> I I don't get that much uh, in a fortnight, though. I am on um, student allowance, youth allowance thing. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so good luck to them. Uh, I might also see if I can find more details about what's what they're actually facing there. Uh, it's, but they're on strike, which is always awesome. And if you can, let's let's send them some money so they can keep on going, and they can win. Uh, now we are going to move on to the finance sector union who have uncovered a further disturbing case of wage theft at the Commonwealth Bank. So, Finance Sector Union National Secretary Julia Engrasano said the underpayment had been discovered during enterprise bargaining when the Commonwealth Bank included a clause in the proposed agreement saying leave loading is for the loss of opportunity to work overtime during periods of annual leave and consequently superannuation contributions are not made on the payment. The CBA is unlawfully robbing its staff of superannuation payments and we believe they have been doing this for many years, Ms. Engrasano said. We estimate that more than 10,000 Commonwealth Bank staff are affected by the latest underpayment, with each of them losing $60 per person per year. Now, that doesn't sound like much $60 a year, at least for a single person, um, but this is going into their superannuation, their retirement fund, and uh, $60 in when you're 30 years be- behind retirement, or 20 years even, is grows to like a huge loss when you end up retiring at the end and we do currently have and there's almost an ongoing crisis of old people being unable to pay for things um and they're not gonna they don't have enough money when they retire and um because the, the capitalism doesn't find it profitable to make sure that um old people, people who <laughs> can't work as much are able to live. Um, yeah, so I'm going to continue on now. This, The last time we caught the Commonwealth Bank underpaying workers, underpaying bank workers in 2017, it cost the bank more than $53 million in back pay for affected staff, she said. That was for, among other things, failing to pay wages and superannuation to part-time workers on extra hours and affected thousands of staff. This latest underpayment of superannuation will lead to a massive loss for workers when they retire because of the impact on superannuation earnings. Ms. Angrasano said the FSU had become aware of the latest insurance instance of wage theft um, after this Commonwealth Bank released a version of the EEA uh, enterprise agreement containing the leave-loading clause as it pushed forward with a staff voting process which the union opposes. There remain a number of serious unresolved issues in this bargaining process and the finance sector union is calling on the on Commonwealth Bank staff to reject this agreement so negotiations can continue. Commonwealth Bank can't be trusted to do the right thing and is trying to legitimise its illegal behaviour by pushing this agreement to a vote. 
This is a further example of deliberate and systemic wage theft by Australia's richest bank. It's an attack on all workers at Commonwealth Bank, but particularly frontline workers, who are mostly women and the lowest paid workers at Commonwealth Bank. Ms. Angrisano said the finance sector union was briefing lawyers and unless the CBA responded by tomorrow, it will take action in the Federal Court, federal Circuit Court on Friday. Yeah, that is... Um, it's great to see the finance sector union fighting back. Um, and it's, I think it's great that they have this, um, like, consciousness, I guess, this intersectional consciousness on the... Uh, um, on the effects that the of the actions of the bank on women, um, uh, frontline workers. They said, like, the, I'm going to repeat it. It's an attack on all workers at Commonwealth Bank, but particularly frontline workers who are mostly women and who are the lowest paid workers at Commonwealth Bank. Um, yeah, it's really cool just to see them um, making that statement. Um, recognizing the intersectional, the compounded oppression that women have as both workers and uh, women in the patriarchy. Um, and in addition to taking this to the Federal Circuit Court, the uh, Finance Sector Union is or has also got a petition. No, was it a petition? No, it was a campaign to vote no. <laughs> yeah, uh, so they're running a campaign. If you're a worker at Commonwealth Bank, um, Go check out the Finance Sector Union website. Look at all the reasons you should vote no to the proposed enterprise agreement. Um, hopefully that doesn't go through and the union can force a better better agreement that won't leave these workers um, starving when they're 80. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now we're going to move on to some more workers' action uh, this is about Newry Forest in New South Wales. Um, this little statement here is from a change.org petition uh, by the Forestry Ecology Alliance. Um, so many community members and conservation groups are concerned that forestry... Corporation of New South Wales have scheduled logging in Newry State Forest. Forest Ecology Alliance is a group of ecologists and citizen scientists who are surveying the area for threatened species and organising public recreational activities. Newry State Forest is a large, thriving native forest near Valla, Balingan, Barrowville and Urunga. It is an extraordinary beautiful, be extraordinarily beautiful biodiverse forest, home to many giant trees up to 8 metres in diameter. That is huge. Um, <laughs> you can see why the loggers want it. The forest borders on Janinga Reserve and Bolanola Mountain. The, this area has remained hugely signif culturally significant to Gumbanya custodians for tens of thousands of years. So not only is this an environmental issue and a uh, community issue. It's a it's a th something that will affect First Nations workers as well. Um, it's a it's that huge intersection that we see playing out all over this continent between yeah First Nations, environment, and um, everyone else. <laughs> uh, 
So Nuri State Forest represents the most easterly boundary of the only significant remaining wildlife corridor running west to east from the high country to the coast in this water catchment area. It provides healthy habitat and abundance of old-growth tree hollow shelters for threatened and endangered fauna species, trees that are unusual for this latitude. For example, two species of Angophora are vigorously growing alongside many other tall and or feed trees such as coachwood, blackbutt, ironbark, tallowwood, aloe casuarina, and grey gum. Nuri State Forest is an unusually quiet space and could be a focal point for locals and tourists to enjoy if it were to become part of the proposed Great Koala National Park. The economic gains for uh, the economic claims, gains, and employment opportunities associated with ecotourism are far more beneficial to the region, both short than both short and long-term logging could ever be. The steep slopes of Newry State Forest are unsuitable for logging and have highly erodible soils. Forest destruction could heavily impact on waterways, properties, and oyster farms downstream. Deforestation in the mid north coast has escalated in recent years due to highway construction, housing development, and modern harvesting machinery designed for fast, clear-fell-intensive logging. Recent changes to logging rules and the wildlife protection laws are highly destructive and lead to habitat fragmentation, bushfire devastation, decreased rainfall associated with climate change, bell miner and weed infestation have also caused further forest destruction in the area. Yet right now, Nuri State Forest is a peaceful, life-giving haven for all and should remain that way. Yeah, um, and in response to this threat, a group has formed to take direct action to stop the destruction. They are, they are called the Nuri Native Forest Blockade. And if you want to... And you can look them up on Facebook if you want to be involved. Um, and if obviously this is in New South Wales. So if you just want to sign their petition, you can just search up Protect Nuri State Forest Rare Habitat. And that's on change.org by the Forest Ecology Alliance. Um, yeah, so... It's logging, it's destroying uh, forest, and there's already been too much destroyed forest in the recent bushfires, um, well, recent last year, but the, they don't grow back quickly. Um, and it's a really important habitat for a whole bunch of animals, too. Anyway, um, so we're going to move on to some more workers' action now. Uh, so this, the following is attributable to the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign. A 3.5% increase applied to all award minimum rates is a modest wage claim from the ACTU and the annual wage review now underway. Predictably, the employers supported by most governments will say it is far too much and they will press for something very low or zero. Two issues arise from our union movement's point of view. How will we deal with the populist argument to be run by opponents that wage increases will cause unemployment? And what will be the character of the campaign to back up our claim? On the second question, how can an industrial campaign be run that attracts new members into the movement? We already know that a zero industrial campaign will not attract new members, even though they the claim can produce a gain for all workers on or close to award rates of pay. 
Today was the deadline for the first admissions. We should be reading and analysing them and starting discussions in our unions and in our workplaces. Backup submissions will happen after the May federal budget. The Commission is bound to hand down a decision by June 30th to enable implementation by all employers in the first day pay period from July 1st. The AWR is the single most important annual decision that shapes the standard of living for low-income wage earners. For more information about the Life Campaign, head to livingincomes.org.au or their Facebook page, Living Incomes for Everyone. Right, uh, 3.5% increase to all award minimum rates. Uh, yes, uh, so that is interesting. Could be good. Uh, if it gets through, and with the life campaign fighting for it, you know, hopefully it will. Um, so yeah, the life campaign, that is a coalition of unions and other groups that was formed in order to try and, sorry, <coughs> keep the, uh, especially like unemployed people's groups, in order to keep the uh, the job keeper seeker job seeker rate as high as it was during the pandemic, because people were finally able to actually live a bit comfortably instead of having to suffer. Um, yeah. So now we are going to. It's eleven sixteen a.m. Got around forty minutes left. That's plenty of time. I'm going to read some more stories got one from Green Left Weekly. It's a similar thing to life, but with a focus on environmental stuff. So unions and community groups form new environmental jobs alliance in Geelong. By S- and the story is by Sue Ball, and it's from Green Left Weekly. Thousands of jobs have been shed over the past two decades in this regional city west of Melbourne, as big manufacturers and employers such as Alcoa and Ford have shut up shop and left. Geelong Trades Court Hall Council decided to address the lack of employment and put a call out for all interested parties to begin an environmental jobs alliance Geelong. 30 people attended a meeting on March 23rd to discuss this. They represented 16 organisations, including 10 unions, as well as Geelong Trades Hall. Two local Labour MPs sent their apologies and their representatives. The meeting agreed to remain independent of GTHC and decided on a set of aims for a charter. They include agreement on the name and a commitment to campaign for new environmentally sustainable jobs in the region. Also agreed was that uh, the Jobs Alliance would be an inclusive group contributing time and resources to campaigns which influence public opinion, the public opinion, government policy and business investment decisions. The Geelong Trades Hall Council Secretary Tony Anderson told Green Left it's a great opportunity for Geelong with the emphasis for the community on jobs and the environment. It's more than the federal government has ever thought of. Jobs Alliance Charter will be both activist and research oriented. Uh, it will campaign for environmentally sustainable jobs, public sector funding and acceptable levels of apprenticeships and or traineeships within those industries. It was also agreed that the Jobs Alliance would support industries that use or are transitioning to clean renewable energy. 
participants agreed that jobs and environment do not need to be counterposed. The meeting agreed to meet in another month to decide on a set of rules and future plans. Yeah, that's neat. Um, so it's the kind of stuff we really need uh, if we want to survive the climate apocalypse. Um, it's obviously not the end-all and be-all or whatever that idiom is. Um, but it is a big part of it, you know, transitioning. It's a, We need to be able to take some control over our labour and move towards more sustainable labour and uh, t towards something, towards types of work that aren't <laughs> going to kill us. Um, even if they won't ultimately... Well, they'll at least like slow down the destruction of the ecosystem. Um, yeah, so that's good. I'm going to read this next story now, which is about the whole thing going on at Parliament House, which I'm sure you've heard of, and we covered a couple of weeks ago in our International Working Women's Day episode, where we had a member of the SC Community Public Sector Union, um, CPSU, to talk about what was going on. Uh, so this is the story. Union members working in federal parliament demand protection, respect at work. And this story is by Cam Carrie Smith from Green Left Weekly. Uh, on March 24th, community and public sector union members were pre presented uh, the ACTU President Michelle O'Neill and CPSU National Secretary Melissa Donnelly with an open letter outlining their demands for greater workplace safety and respect. We deserve to be safe and respected in our workplace, the letter said. The revelations of widespread gendered violence over the last month have been deeply disturbing. Further, the letter said that workplaces have significant power imbalances which at times allow bullying, sexual harassment and sexual assault to fester and go unpunished as we heard during these headlines a little bit ago um, we are workers and like all workers we deserve to be safe at work. The open letter calls for an independent and confidential complaints process which is victim centric and ensures there are consequences for poor behaviour a safe workplace that guarantees workers workplace health and safety rights. That includes mandatory training for MPs and staff, safe reporting mechanisms, and data reporting to workplace health and safety committees or equivalent. Uh, for gendered violence and sexual harassment mitigation strategies in enterprise agreements in both Houses of Parliament as well as other departments. For specialised and ongoing support services for all workers in parliamentary workplaces, and the immediate implementation of the 55 recommendations of the Respect at Work report. O'Neill said the Morrison government has been dragged into the realisation that the workplace culture in Parliament House is toxic and dangerous, especially to women. This is not news to workers who go to work every day in a high-risk workplace where sexism is rife, sexual harassment is common, and sexual assaults is, are alleged to have happened. The demands, if met, would provide clear and confidential reporting lines, consequences for actions, training, support, and obligations to mitigate risk. It also asks the Morrison government to implement the recommendations of its own report into sexual harassment in the workplace, which has been sitting in a drawer in Christian Porter's office for more than a year. 
the entire union movement stands with these workers who are fighting to make their workplace safer. It is, the par- it is past the time for the Morrison government to act. Yes, we're here we have workers, uh, you know, going, saying what they want and hopefully getting it. Uh, I want to talk about this line. Uh, the Morrison government has been dragged to the realization that the workplace culture in Parliament House is toxic and dangerous. Now, I th- think while that is brilliant, um, and f- hopefully uh, they can <laughs> hammer that into his head and actually get him to change it, what we need is for the Morrison government to be dragged to the realization that uh, the workplace culture in Parliament House is toxic and dangerous to their profits. Um, because as we know, the Liberal government is, has a bunch of corporate donors, uh, and workers uh, could, if they wanted, if they were organised and uh, willing to, they could threaten the profits of those donors in a way that um, supports the women in Parliament House. Just a little idea there, though. <laughs> um, just going on, just, just going on a little strike, you know. Uh, yes, lovely. Now we're going to move on to some international workers' action, uh, which we've got a story here from Myanmar again. A little bit, an update. Uh, Bill found this and put it in the run sheet. So. Myanmar update from AP News. Uh, Content warning, this is an important update, but it includes reports on killings in the country. If you're sensitive to that type of thing, please come back later. Myanmar security forces opened fire Sunday on a crowd attending the funeral of a student who was killed on the bloodiest day yet of a crackdown on protests against last month's coup local media reported the escalating violence which took the lives of at least 114 people on Saturday including several children has prompted a UN human rights expert to in- to accuse the hunter of committing mass murder and to criticize the international community for not doing enough to stop it the security council is likely to hold closed consultations on the escalating situation in Myanmar UN diplomats said Sunday, speaking on condition of anonymity ahead of an official announcement, the council has has condemned the violence and called for a restoration of democracy, but has not yet considered possible sanctions against the military, which would require support or an abstention by Myanmar's neighbour and friend China. The mounting death tolls have not stopped the demonstration against the February 1st takeover, or the violent response of the military and police to them. Myanmar now report Myan- Myanmar now, so that's the name of a news news people, uh, reported that the hunters troops shot at the shot at mourners at the funeral in the city of Bago for they Mongbong, um, a twenty year old killed on Saturday. He was reportedly a member of the All-Burma Federation of Student Union, which has a long history of supporting pro-democracy movements in the country. 
According to the report, several people attending the funeral were arrested. It did not say if anyone was hurt or killed, but at least nine people were killed elsewhere Sunday as the crackdown continued, according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, which has been documenting deaths during demonstrations against the coup. Some of the funerals held Sunday became themselves opportunities to demonstrate resistance to the junta. At one in Balmo in the northern state of Kachin, a large crowd chanted democracy slogans and raised the three-finger salute that has come to symbolize defiance of the takeover. Family and friends were paying their respects to Shui Mint, a 36-year-old who was shot dead by security forces on Saturday. The military had initially seized her body and refused to return until her family signed a statement that her death was not caused by them, according to Democratic Voice of Burma, a broadcast and online news service. In Yangon, the country's largest city, meanwhile, mourners flashed a three-finger salute as they wheeled the coffin of a 13-year-old boy. Sai Waiyan was shot dead by security forces as he played outside his home. The February 1st coup that ousted Aung San Suu Kyi's elected government reversed years of progress towards democracy after five decades of military rule. It has again made Myanmar the focus of international scrutiny as security forces have repeatedly fired into crowds of protesters. At least 459 people have been killed since the takeover. According to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, the crackdown the crackdown extends beyond the demonstrations. Humanitarian workers reported that the military had carried out airstrikes set on Sunday against guerrillas in the eastern part of the country. Henrietta Four, head of the UN Children's Agency, uh, UNICEF, said in Saturday's bloodiest day uh, since the coup, an 11-year-old boy, an 11-year-old girl, two 13-year-old boys, a 13-year-old girl, uh, Three 16-year-old boys and two 17-year-old boys were all repeatedly shot and killed. She said a one-year-old baby girl gravely injured after being struck in the eye with a rubber bullet. In less than two months, at least 35 children have allegedly been killed, countless others seriously injured, and almost a 1,000 children and young people reportedly arbitrarily detained by security forces across the country, he said, condemning the indiscriminate killings and demonstrating, demanding that those responsible be held accountable. The junta has accused some of the demonstrators of perpetrating the violence because of their sporadic use of Molotov cocktails and has said its use of force has been justified to stop what it has called rioting. While protesters have occasionally held firecrackers at troops and on Saturday carried bows and arrows, they remain falsely outgunned and have shown commitment to methods of non-violent civil disobedience. Saturday's death toll far exceeded the previous single-day high that ranged from 74 to 90 on March 14th. The killings happened throughout the country as Myanmar's military celebrated the annual Armed Forces Day with a parade in the country's capital, Naypyidaw. Um, today, the junta of Myanmar has made Armed Forces Day a day of infamy with a massacre of men, women and very young children throughout the country said Tom Andrews, UN's independent expert on human rights for Myanmar. Words of condemnation or concern are frankly ringing hollow to the people of Myanmar while the military junta commits mass murder against them. It's past time for a robust, coordinated action. 
the schools were echoed by others. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said he was shocked by the killings of civilians, including children, and a group of defense chiefs from 12 countries also condemned the, condemned the violence. UN Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide, Alice Wairimu Nidatritu, uh, and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet said the shameful, cowardly, brutal actions of the military and police have been filmed shooting at protesters as they flee and who have not even spared young must be halted immediately. Uh, Joe Biden told reporters, It's terrible. It's absolutely outrageous. Based on the reporting I've gotten, an awful lot of people have been killed. Totally unnecessary. Biden said his administration is working on a response but offered no details. It's still not clear what action is possible or how quick it could be. The UN Secretary Council has not advocated concerted action against the junta, such as a ban on selling its, ar- on selling its arms. China and Russia are both major arms suppliers to Myanmar's military as well as potentially politically as well as it is, as well as politically sympathetic. If the Security Council isn't able to do anything, Andrews called for an emergency international summit. Human rights groups and Amnesty International also criticised the hesitancy to do more. UN Secretary Security Council UN Security Council member states continued refusal to meaningfully act against this never-ending horror is contemptible, said Ming Yu Ha, the organization's deputy regional director for campaigns. In the meantime, protesters have continued to rally in Myanmar streets. In one demonstration in Yangon on Sunday, a small group made its way through a residential area the day before that the day before had seen chaos with police shooting at demonstrators and the protesters responding with fireworks and Molotov cocktails. The march finished without incident. Um, in an addition to unleashing violence against demonstrators, the military is also continuing to battle ethnic Karen fighters in the country's east. About 3,000 villages from the territory controlled by the Karen fled across the border to Thailand. On Sunday, uh, on Sunday, after Myanmar military aircraft dropped bombs on the Karen guerrilla position, um, Karen National Union is one of more than a dozen ethnic organizations that have been fighting for decades to gain more autonomy from Myanmar's central government. The tension at the border comes as the leaders of the resistance to the coup are seeking to have the Karen and other ethnic groups join them as allies. So far, the ethnic armed groups have only committed to providing protection to protesters in areas they control. So uh, as part of that, I found this other story about the Karen fighters, the Karen National Union. Uh, and I got this story off Abolition Media Worldwide. The website's amwenglish.org. I think it's .org. It's amwenglish. Um, the Karen National Union announced on Saturday that it had seized control of the Hunter's Thi military base in the Kayan State's uh, Mutro district. The exact number of casualties from the clash was not known at the time of writing, but photos released by the KNU show at least five bodies. The KNU's armed wing, the Karen National Liberation Army, is fighting to overthrow Myanmar's fascist dictatorship, along with students and other citizens, said Saw Hutuka Shaw, the tactical commander of the Liberation Army's Brigade 5. 
The bullying and killing of unarmed civilians across Myanmar is against our revolutionary forces' beliefs. We cannot accept inhumane acts, not only in Kayan State, but also in other areas, he said. In our area, we do not want the hunter's army and soldiers that commit such acts. There should be no place on earth for those who commit inhumane acts, he added. We all have to fight in any way we can. This time it must be a decisive revolution. Young people are losing their lives because of the hunters' humane acts, inhumane acts, so we don't want to forgive them. The Liberation Army's Vice Chief of Staff... Uh, oh, so that quote was from the Liberation Army's Vice Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Sorbo Kyo-hae. Um, the attack on the base came as the hunter was holding a brief Armed Forces Day celebration in the capital, Naypyidaw, on Saturday morning. On March 15th, another guerrilla group, the Kachin Independence Army, seized the region re- regime's Alobuem base, located near the town of Dorponyang in Kachin State's Momok Township. The KIA and KNU have both declared that they reject the military's February 1st coup. Wow, well, after all that reading, I am feeling a bit tired, but uh, that's it's obviously horrifying what's going on in Myanmar. Um, military dictatorship taking back control and killing a bunch of people. Uh, and of course, as Wherever there is oppression, there is resistance to it. So we have a uh, bunch of people fighting back, protesters and um, uh, militaries. And yeah, um, we've had some successes as we just read out. They took control of the base and another group took control of a different base. and. Uh, Otherwise, there's just, like, ongoing fighting in the city, in the streets. And uh, hopefully, like, either they win themselves, though it seems difficult considering how big the military is, or, but, you know, they out obviously outnumber the military um, as any population does and if they organize and work together they can defeat them um, or, or otherwise some other country will step in and uh, while ideally some a person's liberation comes from themselves uh, I'd rather another country step in and shut it down quickly before more people die well, not another country on its own, like an international thing, I guess, because that way there's less imperialism going on. Uh, okay. Actually, this next story is really short, so I'll just get it out of the way, and then I'll go to a song, and we'll come back and finish with our scalawag of the week. So, Sorawi Popular Liberation Army attacks Moroccan occupation forces. So, this is happening in Morocco. So, the unit, which is like North Africa, the units of the Sahawari Popular Liberation Army launched new attacks against the Moroccan occupation forces stationed in sectors of Farsia, Baragui, Horza, and Marbis. The th- on Thursday, the Sawari anti-colonial fi- fighters advanced units bombarded the enemy forces in several places. A chain of bombardments 
targeted the Moroccan occupation soldier sites in the area of Agararat, Al-Ramph, in the sector of Alfasia, and focused a barrage against entrenched forces in Ross Odi Adarams in the sector of Marbus. On the other hand, there was also violent shelling in the Marbus area um, and a concentrated shelling in the Furat Altamat area. Uh, the SPLA attacks continue to plague the Moroccan occupation forces who continue to face severe human and material losses in their ranks along the wall of shame. The armed struggle against Morocco's colonial occupation resumed in Western Sahara, Sahara in Western Sahara last November after a ceasefire had lasted since 1991. From 1975 to 1991, Sahrawi freedom fighters fought a guerrilla war against the Moroccan colonizers. So it's not only in Myanmar that there's fighting going on against a fascist government also going on in Morocco, um, much less uh, reporting on it, but I'd say it's almost pretty much just as important. And we are coming to the end of the... uh, the lockdown show. (laughs) Um, And I am nearly done uh we've just got our scallywag of the week left um yes i hope i haven't been too disappointing of a replacement to uh, the energy that bill can bring to the show (laughs) uh yes i've had a lot of reading a lot of worker struggle a lot of fighting and Let's go to our Scalawag of the Week. So this week's world-famous and prestigious Scalawag of the Week award goes to Innes Willocks, CEO of Industry Australia Group. The IAG have recently made a long-winded submission to the Fair Work Commission's annual wage review that is once again calling on its workers to wait for pay rises in light of the crisis. Capitalists have always had, always have an excuse and they love a crisis, yet we yes so many companies of so many companies making huge profits when does the working class get their share of productivity that comes with crisis <laughs> for this Ennis Willocks deservedly wins our scallywag of the week the little secret there of course is that uh, there isn't actually productivity that comes with crisis what there is is increased exploitation uh the capitalists take the advantage to take even more from the working class um, and they they play it off as so has been so it's been so productive <laughs> um, yes anyway now we are going to end the show uh, stick around if you want to listen to even more news with Brisbane lines uh coming up next and and see you next week comrades <laughs>